I'll tell you what, I, I don't know if this, this is interesting to you, but I was really struck by something recently. So I watched them two, well, I watched one, recently I watched one Powell and Pressburger film, which was The Black Narcissus. Mm. And the other one that we watched, it was only Michael Powell directing, so it wasn't with Pressburger, it was Peeping Tom. Oh yeah. Did you watch that? Yes. So I don't know about you, so apart from, there's a whole bunch of things that were really nice about it. It didn't really come together for me as a film. Not really, but what I was totally blown away by, which is, I mean, this would be a spoiler if anybody hasn't seen it, but it was what um, that uh, the, the protagonist's father had tried to do, was try to capture a person mm. every point of their life on film. Right. I was shocked by that. <laughs> the notion that you mm. can essentially save a person make a copy of them almost mm. through a recorded medium and the thing and like i was i was so surprised by this that i ended up looking at who the writer was and the writer had turned out to be like somebody who had been a key cryptography expert during the second world war oh wow and possibly wow. he is one of the people that contributed to ending weeks early because of all the efforts that he'd done and then he just became a script writer after that that's crazy but uh, yeah i don't know i i was totally stunned by this but by just that notion that because how often do you come across a concept like that in any kind of film? Certainly a film with such a, such a for its time, salacious nature. Yes. That was very strange. So what led you to this film, actually? Well, after seeing uh, The Red Shoes, that's one of the best things I've ever seen. Mm. And so as I've said before, one of the things I'm really preoccupied with is capturing as much as possible. Mm. And depending on the medium this will mean different things. With audio, you can capture the, the room ambience, you can capture the actual performance, you can capture all kinds of things that are intended and not intended. Mm. And with the red shoes, you, it was very rich. There was so much color and it was a combination of the technical process, but also even the type of lighting because they used this, this tungsten lighting, which had quite a, on one hand, a harsh effect, but on the other hand, it gives you a very strong very rich image but mm. it wasn't that that i think was so striking it was everything that came into it because the um, the team of actors who were who were in it they were all essentially playing themselves right wow. so it was the the best dancers of their time i think that the man who played the choreographer had been a lover of nijinsky and degelov at some point mm. so he he had been a dancer himself became a choreographer and then he played a choreographer and essentially played himself and you can tell wow. they're all captured on film as they were rather than playing somebody else but it wasn't just them it was also like even even when you start the film you have these mini scenes of the seamstress is working on the costumes for the dancers and mm. they're having a little conversation and somehow despite the fact that you see them for all of 10 seconds and they exchange a few sentences with each other that really do not contribute anything to the story or and then you never see them again that is a, a mini portrait of everyone and so that was also the case in even peeping tom like the um, uh, you know the, the the women that we see at the start uh, them posing for photographs all this stuff you have little stories about them they're weirdly being themselves and i don't know how they that was even accomplished right, i don't understand right. how you get people to be their full selves and allow you to capture that because as far as like i mean i don't see that very regularly mm -hmm. and i and that appears to be a recurring feature with Powell and pressburger I, so that's why i like those films you 
you've seen some like I, I mean you've seen many more films than me anyway but you've mentioned Palin Pressburger's uh, work before and I'm curious what things you found interesting about their work yes I love both Black Narcissus and Peeping Tom and actually Peeping Tom the way I came across it was because Martin Scorsese restored it I think and he works with Thelma Schoonmacher, mm -hmm. his editor, mm. who was married to Michael Powell. Mm. You knew that. Mm. Yeah. And so he was kind of responsible for a lot of those films being restored. And I think in particular, Peeping Tom, because it was so controversial mm. at the time. Was it like 58 or 60? It was about 13 years after the Red Shoes. So I think about 1961 or something 61, like that. 61, okay. Because yeah. I think, um, yeah, Michael Powell, he was on, he had done a bunch of wartime films, like going back into the 40s. And so every, he his knighthood or whatever was all but assured. And after uh, Peeping Tom, I don't think he ever made another film. It completely ruined wow. his reputation. And so it was so controversial that it was kind of like, I think it was a failure at the time. Mm. And you can, it's a very disturbing film, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And you, it, even that, you know, like, Hitchcock's Frenzy is like in the early 70s and I don't think like they're kind of they're both set in London right and they're kind of like sort of related films somehow but I think I mean Frenzy's pretty disturbing as well but like but yeah Peeping Tom it's like it's crazy that it was made when it was made yeah based on what other British films were being I yeah. mean I suppose yeah well without getting the whole history of British film but have you seen Strange Days no um, so that was in the 90s. It was Catherine Bigelow. Uh-huh. And it's a remake of Peeping Tom. Wow. But, like, very different. It involves, okay. like, VR, AR, like, reproducing people's memories. Huh. <laughs> you should see Strange Days, actually. Okay. Um, yeah, I'll give you a notebook or something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds very interesting. Um, and so... And I'm trying to think of the other ones, so I don't want to get these wrong. There's, I mean, um, A Matter of Life and Death, you should definitely also see. That's mm -hmm. one of my favorite films mm -hmm. of all time. And so so is um, Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Mm -hmm. And yeah, David McDougall and I have gotten into some arguments about yeah. <laughs> Red Shoes because he loves it. And I... I th let's just say I didn't get it. I should probably return okay. to it. I, maybe I was too young. Kate Bush loves it, so I know I'm wrong. When did you watch it? How old were you? Um, I don't know. Maybe in my early 20s or something. Oh, yeah. You should definitely watch it again. Yeah. 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 Um, Kate Bush had an album named The Red Shoes. Uh -huh. Did you know that? Like in the early no. 2000s? Yeah. No. Okay. So. That's my, the, yeah, I mean, that's. I know very little about her, but yes, uh, what little I know... Would make sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm trying to think what their other ones are. Is this just... Yeah, and Black Narcissus, I mean, it's kind of interesting that you say, like, people being themselves, because in a way, you know, like, and being kind of their authentic, like, real selves, because mm. in a way, Black Narcissus is so intensified, and, like, it's it's kind of surrealist, isn't it? Or, like, mm. um, I'm not sure, like, it's dreamlike, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And it's, it's like, like about the id or something, like, it's like about kind of repression and I don't know I don't know um so it's interesting to think about like I what you reminded me of was like a friend of mine Adam he like we were talking about Dickens and he's like Dickens does like these backstories of characters that are introduced for like one and a half pages 
and it's just like this throwaway character that never comes back and it, he's like he does more in that like page and a half than i can do in my whole novel basically <laughs> he's just like he's it's just this kind of super abundance of talent so that you know um and i i just liked his description of that where it's just you know and maybe there's something similar going on with with palin pressburger there's another film well have we talked about the film heat no i haven't seen it you haven't seen it okay highly recommend it okay um and there's another yeah so we just got a group of people in london to go and see that film okay and uh yeah i would be very curious to talk to you about that i mean the other one is we've been talking about wings of desire Mm -hmm. and that one has a similar quality right where basically a character will come in just like and the angel will overhear yeah. Their thoughts that's yeah. not really spoiling anything because it happens from like the very second the film opens practically right yeah and um and just as i was telling you we saw vim vendors speak about it and he you know none of it was scripted and so when they were recording these kind of voiceovers for the characters to you know to be played as their thoughts the actors were just actually giving their real thoughts basically and so so you get this very odd effect of on the one hand total surrealism because it's like these angels existing among humans and yet intense realism because these are they are themselves so it's actually incredible that yeah they kind of had these unpaid actors or or not unpaid but just like people people doing their thing i guess which is probably how you get one of those bits of richness right because you can't actually one person or even two people can't actually generate that much variety you you can only you can only uh, i mean not not exactly that you only write what you know but you're only capable of seeing so much yes so it makes a lot of sense that something like that actually becomes bigger than one person so one of my pet theories is that people like people love density they like calorie dense foods <laughs> they like uh, lots of detail you know we like sumptuous fabrics and <laughs> you know like you, you, like I, I sometimes think about war and peace because i read it mm. as a teenager and my impression was oh my god i've lived less several lifetimes yes the, yes right mm. and so so for me that is like a driving principle i don't know if it is for other people but that, that i for me that's what it stems from i will say Gosh, I hate to say this. Mm. I have a very difficult feeling about Wings of Desire. All right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, what's that? It is hard to talk about. <laughs> Gosh. I, I, so I think your interpretation is correct to say, uh, first of all, like what you said about... What you said about things becoming truly beautiful only when they become real mm. i agree with that i think that is the right i, I think that that's one of the correct interpretations mm. but uh, as a woman i have i have I, I i found that a very difficult experience because so i studied film and i think uh what was it i don't remember i don't remember if like if if wings of desire won palm door but i i I think that paris texas did didn't it and Mm -hmm. it was like 94 it was a few years later where there's a a number of similar dynamics where you you have you know a central male character who is in a journey and there is some amount of salvation found in a an unattainable hum, uh, female figure. Now, in Wings of Desire, this does become attainable, and that, but that's the whole point. Like the conflict, partly this is a very literal interpretation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it means something else. Uh, nevertheless, 
the plot is that you know you have some kind of like amount of longing it is such a longing that you know in or in normal circumstances could not be accomplished mm. and then it is and in paris texas it's 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 really quite similar you know it's, it's not quite like heaven and, and hell and you know all, all this uh, happening but there are certain barriers that's in the end i think in the film there like th those are not really overcome although there is a certain feeling of peace i suppose but <laughs> god um the thing is like rob and i were talking about this too and there's the dynamic of the pursuit of a great beauty in the world of and of and that's the fact that it often takes shape of you know a man longing a woman for a woman because you see it over and over again you know you see it in the divine comedy you see it in faust you see all these instances where you you have a very human story mm. and the story is actually the rep, the story is not really about the people it's about a different uh, longing it's about something that is greater than any one person's life it's about what drives people to create art that exceeds normal capabilities so it is clearly very important but i god oh my god i get so stuck on that mm -hmm. i really do right i because what I, what i find bizarre is that to me when i see not bizarre but what i find interesting is that when i see works that were created by a woman it's a, it's never that dynamic right uh, admittedly maybe i just haven't sought out that much work by women but i feel like and, and partly with film w when female directors get to do anything of course there are certain kind of women where they have to survive the very difficult process of going through the ranks and getting something made and being put into the head of the production which means that the women that end up in that position are going to be very driven mm. women with a very different set of ideals and desires uh, compared to not quite the average woman exactly, but like they're going to be a very specific type of woman. Mm. So maybe it's because of that partly, but yeah, I don't know. I, I find it difficult to, to separate these things. Mm. It, it kind of hurts. The dynamic of uh, embodying beauty as a woman or... I suppose, or... or the woman is the woman is actually a representation for something abstract and so it's not the abstract the representing something real it's actually the other way around which i think is quite interesting right okay and without it clearly this makes things possible this clearly makes incredible things possible but but i i just i find it really problematic mm. uh, like the story of faust is horrible it sounds more like dostoevsky in a way he's always got these kind of young women right that are kind of i don't know i'm thinking of white knights and uh crime and punishment and I don't know but it's interesting that you brought up Tolstoy because I thought of him too one because I totally agree that you do live many lives with Tolstoy you know when when you read those books take so long to read that you're kind of like living with the characters mm. and living through their mm. lifetime somehow it feels more like much more so than you know I suppose a short story or something like something that you can read in a sitting is different right from from a novel which you have to kind of inherently divide up and space through your own life I've heard people say that in that sense films are kind of more like short stories because they all take place at once whereas there's at least the potential for TV series to be to yeah. operate on a more kind of novelistic level of complexity yeah and yet there's something different because I think we were talking about language and how 
you translate these, you know, these very general words back into spatial experience. Yeah. And in a way, a novel is kind of like a huge schematic for bringing a world into being. Yeah. And yeah. so, and it is a world because you and I have read the same book. So we've been through the same, not just the same story, but through the same lives. Like we, there's a sense in which, you know, we think of Pierre or Dolokhov or Natasha and they're like people, right? Because they have this level of complexity and somehow that comes out of the act of co-creation that emerges between us and the novel, right? In a way that there's something potentially more passive about images mm. would you agree yeah definitely i think that or at least it gives you that illusion i think that it is it is so great that we that we have the notion of film criticism of looking deeper um, but in in practice i think that people don't really want to sp expend that effort unless they're like cinephiles or something uh, like i you know i work as an editor mm. we actually when we talk about films we don't talk so much about their themes mm. and yet we are the kind of people who make this stuff mm. i find it astonishing but i think it's very it's i think it's very interesting what you're saying about the passivity and i'm wondering so what is your opinion on this right because so to borrow from from verveki who's the only person i'm able to quote when i talk about philosophy is awful uh, but also he's really good he, uh, he has this term of um he talks about salience landscapes, mm. right? You know, what becomes salient to you in a, within a certain frame. And with film, it is very interesting because you are given a sequence of frames and a lot of information. So you have dialogue, you have the composition of the shot and you have acting, you have all these components and you have sound and there the, the process of translation is constant because some kind of theme is translated into all of these dimensions. That's the whole point. So you're able to make something very dense where if it's something very good, mm -hmm. then everything serves the same purpose and which is how you get a multiplicity of interpretation. And, and I'm wondering, so if you look at it uh, and if you think about salience landscapes, what you're capable of doing is you're able to change the focus of your attention from that to that like a really great work mm. will um, will have an iridescence of interpretation in the sense that if you look at it from this point of view or that point of view yes. you're able to get different interpretations with novels you're obviously able to do this as well but i'm wondering what you think about about um the specificity of attention mm. do you think that because of the nature of putting ideas into words do you think that this means that the person experiencing this work gets a more specific idea of what the writer intended or do you think that no you know something like a novel which has a greater length do you think that that experience actually provides you with such a rich landscape that you, you actually can't tell what it is that you should be pointing, um, uh, switching your attention to it's a great question. I mean, it, it's an odd effect that words on the page have because it's really intensified by poetry, right? Where like there is, I do think there 
iridescence is a good word for it you know because like even two consecutive readings of the same poem are somehow quite different you know and so like there's something going on there but i don't know if i can describe exactly what it is and in something like war and peace especially the opinions diverge like greatly in terms of like um <laughs> what's good about it for example like sure. you know there there's almost i i think there's pretty much universal consensus that it's a good book apart from like of people who have actually read it <laughs> because i think that a lot of people are just put off yes yeah, like a running joke oh yeah, yeah so reading more in peace yeah exactly yeah. and yet it's like a gripping novel it's yeah. not like it's not like it's boring or something at the same time like there you know there are people who love the war parts there are people who love the peace parts yeah and yeah. there's real splits there <laughs> which one were you uh you know i i'm i i joked to a friend recently i'm part of the zero percent uh like there's it's like 50 50 on the war versus peace question and i'm part of the zero percent that loves the historiographical like essays where he just talks about history you know like he's like or he talks about bees or like you know he like he just has these like long kind of like rants in the middle and i'm like oh man i love that stuff and everyone's like oh my god like every abridged version that's the first thing they cut you know and it's like um but um in terms of war versus peace you know, I've, I've, there's a kind of probably sexist, uh, you know, dichotomy or like proposition that, you know, men prefer the war scenes and women prefer the peace scenes. I don't think I really fall into that. Like, I think I preferred, it depends which war scenes and which peace scenes, I suppose. They, they are so vivid, aren't they? Like, so it's like, I couldn't really say that, you know, I have this image of Natasha like hiding under a, I don't know, like when she's like 15 or something. Or her at the opera, you know. Yeah. But then I have this image of Andre like going for the flag, you know, and it's like there. It's hard to like compare them. But one thing I have wondered is, have you ever read um, Sofia Tolstoy's diaries? They are very good to the point like they're and you know that he dictated to her, so like and she, there I think there were seven editions during uh, that that he released. And there's a complex thing going on there because the first edition has like Russian. It's just it's 11 percent French in the first edition because a lot of the dialogue is in French and there's no footnotes in the first edition. In the second edition, I think they added footnotes. And I think he did it maybe slightly reluctantly in Russian to explain the French. And apparently they're all like joke translations. So apparently there's like this hilarious. It's like not it's like slightly facetious explanations. So there's like. And I could be wrong in the order of these editions, but then eventually they do it all in Russian. And then, you know, and so they, they, he had different ways of doing this. She wrote out every edition by hand, which also to me leaves open the total question of like, how much is Liev's authorship? Wow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. Because it's like, and there are things in there that you think, not not just like, I mean, it's partly like, how could any man write this? Mm. But also, how could any one person write this? Yeah. And maybe the answer is it wasn't one yeah. person. It was two. And, mm. and she's just not credited. Mm. And I don't... Maybe this is like a commonly known thing in academia. Or like, I haven't really... I haven't researched any further than kind of reading some of his diaries, reading some of her diaries, and just noting, noticing, damn, she's a good writer. Like, huh. in her diaries. And... 
her their relationship was as you probably know very <laughs> weird and problematic at various times they both kept like super intense journals and they had this like radical honesty policy before that was like probably had that name and then but then they increasingly had like he had to separate his like secret diary from his secret secret diary because they eventually started hiding them again he eventually had one that he kept in his boot basically and so that she couldn't read it Wow. <laughs> um, but she kept hers as well They're, so they were supposed to be reading each other's and then of course he ran away from her famously at the end of his life but at the same time when you read her diary they're they're tragic i mean but she's there it's like the devotion to the work like and to her you know like him as writer it's like so you know like that's kind of like the driving thing that they're doing which is funny because you think like sometimes you think oh well this labor you know people have talked about the labor of men the art work replaces this labor of childbirth or something but i think they have like 13 kids or something like that so it's like it can't be it can't be just that although i, I don't think he really raised them and i think because his mother died when he was like two or something right Know. yeah i'm pretty sure that's right she he was very young when his mother died so he was kind of raised by a um a nurse or something like that yeah. right mm. huh hmm. one other thing i wanted to say sorry i'm going on for a while but mm. like you were saying about just about bringing these things to life and sometimes they're not brought to life like as in they're this is they're appearing on screen as themselves mm. um and both Tolstoy and Ingmar Bergman got into trouble and I, I'm pretty sure other writers did too because people are like this is not fiction dude you're just this is just like literally what happened to me you know yeah. and so there's this odd thing about who owns a story right because mm. like Bergman like people in his life are really furious at him for taking their stories and making them public at the same time, there's a I I'm not going to remember the details of it, but there's a um, this really crazy story about I think it was an American author in like the 19th century who wrote this fictional thing about this like family feud or whatever, and then he was shot by someone who was convinced that it was a story about his family, but apparently it wasn't. It was just completely it was just pure fiction, and so it's like there's this odd you know there's something about bringing things to life. And if you do it well, <laughs> you know, well, one is, are you just translating from your own life things that have really happened to you onto the page? Fitzgerald is, did that in, in Tender is the Night, I think. There's a, quite a few things that's definitely happened to him that are written in there. And then there's, so that that's one form of getting realism. And then the other thing is that maybe it's possible to produce realism that seems so real it must have happened or something. Do you think that's possible? Well, one thing... I came up with my friend Delia recently. Um, there's a film. Have you seen Picnic at Hanging Rock? Yes. You uh, a... On your recommendation. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a view on it? Yeah. I loved it. I, I, I also hated some aspects of it, but at the same time, yes, I thought it was, I thought it was very, I, I thought it was wonderful. And I also really enjoyed um, reading about the possible, the original, the sort of, you know, original ending that's uh that had been planned for it where it gets really strange mm, with the mm. crab yeah do you know about that part no i didn't okay tell okay. me i can't tell no, you about okay. it in detail but i would suggest looking into it because basically there is an explanation for what happened to them okay that was 
released later and I think there's different accounts of whether it was removed from publication or whether it was something that was like I think written later by by the writer um so yes no I love that the cinematography was astonishing again uh, the the only thing I have problem with there is again it's, it's and it's annoying that I, I even feel this way because I'd like to put it aside but just the the notion of um of beauty. Admi admiring beauty and youth uh, beauty and youth specifically but mm. I, to be honest then that's basically an endlessly problematic thing because you know you keep getting older and then what are you going to do are you going to get mad about people being you know appreciating youth that you're no longer you're appreciating a state you're no longer in so I don't think it's that exactly although they're quite young mm. but no I loved it it was quite magical anyway why'd you bring this up because I think it's based on a novel yes um, and so my friend Delia is like, oh, I'm from really near there. Mm. Um, and this is not just like, she doesn't know. Apparently, like, I think even on the Wikipedia, they're saying like, a lot of people think this is a real thing that really happened. Yeah. And so that's another example of like, yeah. basically, yeah. this story is so well known yeah. that everyone just assumes it's true. But in fact, it's, it comes from a novel. Yeah. Right? And so, um, and uh, yeah, the beauty thing. I wanted to ask you, where do you think beauty comes from? There is a phrase, I think it's Dostoevsky, maybe I, I, I could be wrong, but I've I actually been thinking about this today and yesterday, which is, in Russia it's, it's spoken frequently, which is beauty will save the world. Mm. There's this notion, and in my experience, I think that when people say it, they, they have a sort of, I think that there's a perversion or a corruption in the sense of thinking about it as a very a literal beauty. I don't know where it comes from exactly, but how it feels to me is that I think it's a combination of two things more or less which is the density of information so I think that I think that uh, for me simply having a lot of information to to um, experience and this can also this is also a question of compression right because when you have a really good story it is basically extremely effective compression mm. so you have both a sort of bit component, literally the, the sheer amount of information, but also you have like strands of compression there that actually make it even bigger because you end up unpacking that in your head. So I think there's that, the sheer amount of information, but I think it is also this process of being able to layer patterns onto each other mm. and the pleasure that comes from that. So for me, that is what beauty is. And so for example, now that I'm a little bit older, when I see younger people who I think are very attractive, I look at them and I, I often reflect on this. I think, you know, why why do I think that they're so wonderful? Why do other people think they're so wonderful? Mm. And as far as I can tell, it's partly about potential. It's about information that hasn't happened yet. Mm. You're seeing something and you're almost making predictions. You know, right. you're looking at, you're seeing health, you're seeing like all these things and you're seeing what could be and that is information in the future. Mm. So for me, it's it's something like that. It's about efficient compression, a huge amount of information, and the efficient compression then is something like, you know, systems that have evolved organically in such a way that although there's a lot of information, it's all interconnected. So, you know, looking at the natural landscape, for example, mm. you're looking at something that's evolved over centuries, and you end up with a landscape that has shaped itself because of the components that are there so it is pleasing because it has like a high fractal index or whatever but it is also the fact that somehow on some level you understand that what you're looking at 
is the product of a lot of operations. Mm, mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know if that makes sense. What about you? Yeah. I've wondered about this. Another friend of mine used to ask this question about whether it, the question was just posed as like, do you find nature or people more beautiful? Huh. Oh, wow. Okay. Do you have an answer? <laughs> I mean, I feel like they're one and the same thing. Mm. Um, probably. I mean, I feel like nature has a bit more variety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's how he felt. I kind of, it made, the question made me wonder where beauty comes from. And, you know, I kind of thought, is it about pleasure? Is it about attraction? And then if it's about attraction, you know, is it from this kind of infant situation? You know, I mean, not to get too Freudian, but it's like, you know, is it, or <laughs> who is it? Um, is it Klein? Just the idea that it comes, like the first attraction is to the breast, basically. And that this is, it's like literally about survival, of course, but it's also like about having all needs met, right? Mm. And there's all this stuff about, you know, mm. how attuned the mother is to the child and alters nutrient compositions and stuff like that. And so I always wondered if like, you know, that, I, it's just something that I've been wondering about for the past few months. What if that is the basis of beauty and then, or, or like let's say that's the basis of like this the feeling like the notion of satisfaction and then the feeling of attraction and then the feeling and then everything kind of gets layered on top of that so it's such that in the end these much more complex things like nature can become beautiful but i don't really know beyond that it's just something that i've thought about hmm so uh I don't think I'm understanding you correctly, but what it sounds like to me is that it's almost like a, you know, almost architectural in the sense that you have some kind of one major theme and then you end up with a layering on top of that. So you have mm. different iterations, but they're still all harking back to the same sort of source. And it's about, so you, you eventually move further out. And as you move further out, you have some kind of changes in shape. Is that what you mean? That's a, that is all kind of harking back to still the same spot. Yeah, that it's like, that things get repurposed sort of right like these and so it's like you have this really basic thing and then it gets kind of altered like you could think of like weaning as a process of like kind of altering this sense of attraction and satisfaction and like putting it on to like solid food or something like that huh. and then like you know just trying to like taking that these like very very narrow basis of pleasure and pain and somehow everything is a little bit built on that I, I don't know it's like an idea that I've been just kind of messing around with I don't know if I I don't know if it's a good one or not that's interesting a friend of mine had a um, has a child and he was telling me about I was asking him some basic questions as to how it was you know in in the first couple of years that they they had their son and because I had some like really basic questions about, you know, how did you sleep together? Like how, how difficult was it? You know, sleep deprivation, all the stuff that you, you normally hear about with with parents. And the way that he described it was so his kid is like super well adjusted, really mm -hmm. happy, uh, very nice, extremely bright. And he told me that in the first few years, 
they did this thing where they were you know they, they were sleeping together like so the, the you know their son was not in the, ever in the cot uh, or then you know, later on he eventually left their bed right. but the first few years of his life he slept with his parents and all like they had this kind of approach to him where the aim was always to give him this feeling of um of attachment of, of you know of of, of safe of, of happy attachment mm. and so and with, and he described the process of their son maturing and eventually going off and doing his own thing as a natural extension of that so it, it sounded like they didn't actually have to separate him exactly mm. uh, at any point he separated himself right so that is kind of interesting you know the fact that actually it wasn't that they sort of forced him to seek something else. Yes. They provided for him up until the point where he decided he didn't want to do that anymore. Mm. And I think that was also the case with the breastfeeding. So, because otherwise, if it's just a transference, then, well, no, I mean, you're not saying that you would just like indefinitely want the same thing, but you know, you're saying something else. You're saying that the, like the drive is always the same. I don't know. I, I feel like then that's not even a, mm-hmm. necessarily a question of attraction, but like the tension. Mm. Um, the, of, of seeking that tension out yeah yeah and I do think kids well I don't want to talk too much about that because it's not, not having had kids no. but, um, <laughs> yeah. um, at the same time I'm reading a bunch of like anthropology texts and child rearing practices are wildly different across cultures and there are a lot many that just don't think you need to do anything basically mm. and kids just pick everything up naturally mm. you know they they're very attuned to like to adults anyway and so in some cultures like they can just let them wander off and play with machetes and do all these other things and but they're so attuned to the signals that like if the adults just like d- like barely reacts the kid will be like more careful or something like that and so huh. like there's not this need to kind of make them do things or make them not do things right. you can actually just give them an extremely like they can be extremely free and they're completely fine even in what would be considered by most people today to be quite dangerous situations. Interesting. Okay. Ah, I wanted to come back to something in Peeping Tom that I one of my favorite parts. Oh yes. So at the at the start, what we begin with, right, is uh, is seeing the for some of the first early footage that. Um, gosh, what was his name? Tom. Uh, I don't remember the, the main character. The main character. So. Because we, what we see is we see first uh, person perspective him sneaking up on the oh no he wasn't he doesn't sneak up so he he approaches uh, a sex worker in the street and they have a little chat and they go upstairs and this this or either they go upstairs or they they stay downstairs because you see this on a couple of occasions you see the footage you see his uh, his perspective first and then mm. you see the footage playing back. And the first time you see it, it's in color, which is how you know that he is seeing it. And then, and you also see like the the black bars uh, over over the camera, so it's like it's kind of separated into four quarters. And then you see him watching it and playing it back. And I found that really uncanny. Mm. I, I don't know about you, but I was really surprised by that. There was something about watching the same thing over again, except this time it's stripped of color, and the fact that it's in black and white. Mm gives it this sort of feeling of it, immediately it's the, the your perception I, I think of it changes it becomes this it becomes a recording mm. rather than this first person experience and this reminded like me a memory yeah mm. and so something Rob and I also have talked about is 
what you know how artists and, and writers work is they they find something and for whatever reason their their interest is peaked and they keep coming back to it right it's this process of looping back and going mm. over the same thing over and over again which then probably is what allows you to create something with a multiplicity of interpretation right because if you only go over something once then well there's only going to be one interpretation but actually if you just keep coming back and like process the same thing over and over again yes get this thing um, and yeah, I, I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that because because you do so much journaling, because you go over your own notes. Yeah. Yeah, it's something I've thought a lot about a lot. Nietzsche talks about it in the, at the start of Genealogy of Morality. I think that part of what's going on in in his work, and he's saying it's something that's lost, but it's like important. But he, there's a kind of joke about it too, is rumination, and he really means it like in the sense of like a ruminant, like ca- cattle grazing chewing the cud right you know bringing it back up chewing it again you know, this kind of reg- like he's got all these kind of digestive things going on and okay. so he's like i think what he's writing about is the aphoristic form which is basically you know his little um their chunks of text or whatever like they're often very short like a page maybe two pages maybe half a page and schopenhauer wrote like towards the end of his life in this way as well to some degree, Wittgenstein ended up in this category too. So they're really densely interrelated, but they're also like insanely dense because you read it and you're like, whoa. And then you're like, wait, what did that say? And so like, it has this kind of poetic quality to it. And they re- do reward returning to them like a lot. And so there's something, it's something that I've just thought about a lot because that is what I'm, I've kind of built structures with the Zettelkasten and like this crazy system to bring things back all the time. And I am going over and over. Like, I feel like in some weird way, like what I'm working on now is what I was also working on when I was like 18. Yeah. And I'm just like still chewing. Yeah. <laughs> Could you relate to that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think so. I mean, honestly, I don't know for you if it feels similarly, but for many years, I didn't understand why I was doing the things that I was doing and why I liked the things that I liked. It was, and I, I kind of dismissed it because I thought, oh, these things, they don't appear to be related on the surface. It is just me being silly because I am an impulsive person. I have a lot of strange interests. I And I never made sense to anybody else, including myself. Mm. And looking back now, I realize, ah, actually, there was a very... There was a thread. There was a guiding principle. Mm. And like I, I was doing it all for a reason. And wow, actually, I haven't changed at all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, I mean, I don't know what that means, but also changed a lot. But like, But it's funny that the structure is still the same. Yeah. What are you returning to? Iridescence is a big part of it, which is funny because there's a literal iridescence. Like uh, I, one of my early memories is we went to uh, we went to a shop and the f- and we bought something. It was like a book or something. And on the back there was a sticker with a, a security. It was a security sticker mm. that was there to prevent you stealing it, I think, or something like that. And I remember, um, you know, ripping it off and picking it apart and peeling it all, all the layers off and just being fascinated by all the holographic colors. Mm. And before that, I remember I was doing things like breaking open kaleidoscopes to <laughs> to see what was inside. Wow! Uh, being obsessed with um, with bubbles, soap, films, things like that. Always the different colors. And that is a superficial thing in the sense that you can you see it very easily. It's right there. Mm. And but it is this iridescence, like you know, I talked about it earlier, which has become very metaphorical now. This notion of seeing something in different ways, of 
it's changing depending on what your perspective is and but what what has become quite strange though is seeing when other people are interested in it too so i discovered not long ago that william blake was really into rainbows and for him it has this like strange spiritual connotation and yeah and i i ended like another thing that i did was about 10 years ago i did a few short okay so i had this i had this uh problem with eating disorders i had an obsession with chocolate that i didn't know what to do with Mm. and i didn't i really didn't know it was making my life really difficult because i got into this horrible cycle where i ended up starving myself Mm. and not really knowing what to do about it it was enormous efforts to i would then spend my weekend either starving or eating too much and that was taking control over my life and i thought well shit what do i do about this now and at the time youtube was becoming a bigger thing and i thought okay i'm gonna kill two birds with one stone i will see if i can not become a youtuber exactly but i thought i will do something and i was hoping to transfer my obsession with chocolate Mm. from eating it to looking at it and i thought okay i'm just gonna become like you know a famous person on the internet who does weird reviews Mm. and i looking back that was a surprisingly coherent uh, thing i don't know if it works exactly but i remember i was walking down the street in woolwich and there was a market and i it was a like they, they all these like crappy little shops selling plastic wares that you know cost a pound and it would be like you know cleaning brushes or whatever and there was one place that would sell you vinyl tablecloths mm. and there was one roll which had some kind of design on the other side but when you flipped it over it would be this strange holographic material so i remember buying this and just being obsessed with it and thinking well what do i do with it now and then i used that as my background in these videos and i ended up doing really strange things i would put it i would use a macro lens with it i would put it on a, like rotating platform all this other weird stuff and yeah like oh the obsession with colors has not gone away and now it's just taken different forms now it feels very different but it's still very much there so so the, i think the surprising thing there is the fact that something superficial became somehow conceptual in nature mm. i didn't expect that to happen i don't know if you've had anything similar something that's sort of on the one hand it looks like it stays the same but it's almost like a, an iceberg quality that there is this one way of looking at it but actually there's a Below. lot yeah. yes exactly mm. Yeah, there, I can definitely relate to that. I mean, what I feel like I've been returning to is this question of like novelty and safety. I think often because I like have a high desire for novelty and like a high drive for it, and I'm like seek it in many ways, and I'm really you know just you know always want something new. I'm always reading something new, like learning about something new, you know that kind of thing. And then feeling like there's some kind of constraint because society values like stability or Mm. safety. And so there's like that these things are intention. And then, you know, but then that becomes this really general thing about order and chaos and like explore versus exploit and like, you know, um, the sort of edge of chaos, complexity systems and you know is consciousness of this nature is it you know like is life of this nature because if it's too ordered it's like dead basically because it's not in motion but if it's too chaotic it like also kind of disperses and this seems to also be the case with like stars where they're Mm. kind of you've got this hydrogen and if there's not enough of it then it kind of just stays as this nebulous thing and then if it there's too much of it it collapses and there's this kind of 
seems to be this like balancing point but it's not a balance like there's something in the middle like there's a range in the middle and chaos on either side somehow it's like it's like life is in the middle of two types of death huh and um sometimes i think of it as being like a a valley on a mountaintop somehow i don't know why oh that's a really appealing mental image Mm. that's good and i the okay let's say 100 years okay so first of all who do you think commented on this not the earliest exactly but in as far as you are concerned what are the uh, earliest sources that you found that comments on on this on on the life being between these two extremes has this has this been a thought for a long time how obvious has it been it's definitely been a thought for a long time i mean the Tao Te Ching has you know this kind of tension of yin and yang i suppose but it's also like yeah there's there is something mm, yeah Taoism definitely has it i've more recently there's kind of Empedocles has this idea of like love and strife and so that there might be like these this kind of tension Heraclitus who like I was just saying I'm just starting to get into um, and these are like all around the 5th 6th century BC I think so um, and uh, he's got this idea of war is the father of all and there's like a kind of there's a constant sort of tension striving in in everything and uh but yeah i really want to get into to his like he has these a a few hundred fragments in more detail and i suppose there's the kind of like basic one of like if you think of these like the an over simplistic mapping of these goes on to to good and evil and then it goes back not just to genesis but also to like zoroastrianism and like these old religions where like that are kind of or, or Mazdaism or whatever like there's the, there are these very old things no one knows exactly how old there's some debate but like um you know actually i think i, I don't want to get too into it but i think like this is there's like this transition in like babylonian religions where essentially the chaotic one starts out as good and then eventually like basically the chaotic one is good and the ordering oh. one is evil wow. and then over the course of the religion it switches such that like yeah the um ordering one becomes the good one and the chaotic one becomes the evil one or something like that that's so interesting mm. uh, so uh, some this is okay this is actually super interesting the way you put it there because i i was listening to a podcast about william morris recently oh wow yeah and there was, um, I don't know very much about Morris. I, I learned quite a lot there. It was a really good em- episode of In Our Time. And they touched on Morris. Uh, I they love spoke In Our Time. Ab- so good. <laughs> so they, they focused on Morris, but then they also spoke a bit about John Ruskin and, you know, mm. the kind of these environments. And the one of the things... Raphaelites, right? Exactly. And one of the things that was brought up was uh, William Morris's love for aggression. Oh, wow. And of, you know... <laughs> Not not love for it exactly, but like like the value of violence, mm. and I don't hear so much about that now. Anyway, I mean, like again, like I I don't do a lot of reading to be honest, but but with this inter- it's interesting that you say that then because then it kind of makes sense that that is more in alignment with people who are more creative, just the seeing it 
as a very valuable thing because I think that it is no surprise I think that the conversation that we have now that you know violence is, is, is not acceptable it is never mm. acceptable it should never be a thing but for him it was like it's very important and yeah I think that's kind of fascinating and yeah there's the quote from Flaubert I think it's like um I'm gonna butcher it but it's like be like orderly and predictable in your life so you can be violent and <laughs> extreme in your work or something like that and then I feel like there's another thing that that reminded me I can't remember it's better than that one in the original but the um yeah the question of violence well we were talking about whether to translate Celine recently and mm. there's like yeah and I suppose like you know if you think of like Dostoevsky or Kafka like they're they're they are very violent, aren't they? they? And I suppose they're... I'm trying to think of, like, maybe Welbeck or something. I'm not, like... I'm trying to think of, like... Because you're right. It's Violence is kind of not popular, like, at the moment, and probably for good reason. But at the same time, there is... There is this thing about creative destruction, right? Or... or um, yeah, I mean, you, you cannot have progress without destroying something. Yes. Progress, in, like, it, it means that something must be destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so if you get rid of, of the violence, then you, you get stagnation. It's just a question whether it's gradual or abrupt, I guess. Yeah. And I, I mean, what kind of violence would you even choose? Like, well, I don't know what kind of... I, I say choose because if I accept that the violence is important, then I have to submit to some kind of violence. And I don't know what that looks like. It's something I've thought about a lot in terms of kind of like becoming a new person, right? Requires the death of another, like the death of an old self, right? And so that there's like a massive resistance to it. And yet, like there's something like in those transformations, they're both kind of violent and also rejuvenating or like yeah I don't know I think it's interesting that you talk about it as uh, the death of a self which then implies that it's a sequence of cells rather than the parts of a self yeah okay I think it's a succession of cells actually yeah interesting and they're vying for power (laughs) wow okay so they're selected on Darwinian principles but not so much competition more like variation and selection and so like there's it's like every moment there's like a new bid somehow and so there's but but it's you know in buddhism like there's a deny this is what the middle way is about it's like the denial that the self is eternal or that that it's the same self Mm. so so specifically i think in the early suttas like when he's talking about the question of selves he, he wants to deny both the f- he's specifically talking about like is the person who does the action the one who receives the action as in if you take an action is it the same self that persists through the course of that action and comes out the other side huh. and he denies that and he also denies that it's a different self so basically he's saying it's neither that you're the same person after some kind of transformation nor is it the case that you're a different person? There's like some, it's like a ship of Theseus kind of thing where, mm. you know, like there's, there is some continuity, but it's not 
like there can't be like a pinned down self and so i think at least that's my understanding of his denial of these two paths of annihilationism or sometimes it's just called nihilism and eternalism and that it is about the persistence of of selves and this may be what rebirth is about actually (laughs) that makes a lot of sense but also i think it's quite interesting that if it's like if it's neither a new self um it's quite good because then yeah if you pin it down then it kind of probably doesn't work anymore maybe you have to always go go in between um oh crap there was there was something else that was relevant what was it uh anyway succession of selves yeah nietzsche had a similar thing actually i found out like after i i like i think i tweeted about this it was like because i had this like period where i was like thinking about selves in terms of a succession and of like competing bids for the control of the organism basically which i know is a very weird dualistic way of like looking at it but it's like which is the most persuasive or something Mm. like that or what what is the best self for this situation or something like that which is quite interesting because like the way you talk about that reminds me um of some of the discourse that i've seen about you know the shadow self and things like that the notion that there are all these different parts of yourself like what is it Uh, internal family systems Mm -hmm. the notion that there's different parts of you bidding for attention and then depending on the situation you are like allowing yourself i think to to take on these uh, yeah yeah yeah, exactly Mm. so that's very appealing another thing is though like um you know what the matryoshkas, um, the the Russian dolls. Oh yeah, that came up today on Mastodon actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, what came up? Because okay. So just someone was saying, asking me if this was my conception of truth, because <laughs> I'm talking about um, Puranist skepticism, okay. and I'm, like they want to oppose both like the dogmatists who think there's one truth and we know what it is. And so that includes everything from like Stoics to Epicureans to like Platonists and Aristotelians and definitely Christians and definitely like kind of this scientism as it exists today is that there's one truth and we've got it. Mm. That's dogmatism Mm. for for the skeptics. Mm. And then the other is, let's just call it the academics. And basically they think truth can never be attained. Therefore, don't bother. Mm. Whereas the skeptic position is never stop investigating. Mm. And I'm like, dude i'm a skeptic like Mm. or i'm a pyrrhonist more more specifically skeptic meant investigator or like investigation and so it's not this just like what we think of as skeptic where you just dismiss things that's more like an academic position Mm. at least in ancient greece and so i was saying this on a social media platform called mastodon and someone came back saying like well, this seems equivalent to just saying there is no truth if you just have to constantly investigate. And I was like, well, I kind of disagree with that, actually. And he was like, unless you think that it's the truth is like the Matryoshka dolls. And he put an image of that. And I was like, yeah, maybe I think that. I don't know. But why did you bring them up? Because it's a really recent invention. Oh, right, it is okay. only existing since like the um, late 1800s, I think. Right. And I used to think of it as like this quintessentially Russian thing. That's what most people do. Mm. Like when you think about Russian culture, that is quite possibly like symbol number one beyond right. the Kremlin or whatever. And, but it came from Japan. Right, wow. When, and so I think it's kind and of Faber interesting. Eggs. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, the, like this notion that you, you, you have some kind of like succession of selves then mm. I just think it's quite appealing. Like, it makes sense to me that something like that's... I mean, I guess uh, Japan was more, uh, I don't know, Shintoism or something like, so maybe not necessarily uh, a, like a, a Buddhist flavor. But I just... 
I, I think it's quite a beautiful visual metaphor and and it turns out it comes from Japan. I just thought it was quite interesting that yeah, it mm. is uh it's just very attractive as a concept. Yeah. Okay, I don't actually I, I yeah, I don't know what else to say. I No, me neither. Okay. <laughs> I We can leave it there. Let's leave it there. Um I would like to record more because I'd like to I'd like to be a bit more specific because what I don't like is like, you know, vaguely pointing towards things that I, I half remember. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so let's leave it there. Yeah, people should watch The Red Shoes, though. Everybody should watch The Red yeah, Shoes. I think that would be really great. And you should watch it again, too. I should watch it yeah. again, yeah. Yeah, it's so yeah. good. It's so mm-hmm. good. God, that insane ballet scene. My God. That will never be made again. Never, never, never. You just couldn't afford it to pay we so much. You should definitely money. continue. Because I, I, as I recall, even the deep cuts of Colin Pressburger are excellent. So, like, yeah. I, what what is weird to me was the fact that the um, black narcissist. I, I was reading Michael Powell's commentary on this, and he was talking about the fact that like eroticism is in every single frame. Right. If that's the case for that, that must be the case for uh, for all the other films. Right. I think it is probably all about some kind of like strange longing because it couldn't have just appeared only in Black Narcissus or only in, in Peeping Tom. Um, and by the way, Moira Shearer in Peeping yes. Tom. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Gosh. And Deborah Carr is amazing too. If you haven't seen her, that was other the first films. time I saw her in anything. Oh really? That was really interesting. Oh, you should definitely see The Innocence and um, oh, what else is she in? I think she's in From Here to Eternity. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Well, um, um, is that okay? Okay, The Innocence is that a is that a horror film? Yeah, sort of ish. That's not where she plays a um, like, like nanny. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I have seen that. I'm gonna and I'm gonna have to see it her. again. Okay. Okay. We're just going on memory here, so I feel like she I feel like she's very good in something else too. Well we'll have to look it up. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs>